0: Hey, Crosspoint, it's so good to be with you. And I want to welcome ladies joining us from God Behind Bars. We are glad that you're with us as well. As we are in this series, wonder Us, and we're talking about relationships, I want to take you back to something that happened last Labor Day. I took, uh, Rhea and I took, we took the family. We wanted to go explore the rich cultural history of East Tennessee. So we took them to Dollywood and uh, Pigeon Forge. And on the way there, we rounded a corner and we looked up and we saw a building and on the side of the building, there were the words adult high school. And my son, Durham, who was 15 at the time, he looked at me. He's like, Dad, what's an adult high school? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, but you got a little computer in your pocket. Why don't you get it and figure out like, <laughs> what an adult high school is? And then he said, well, Dad, can, can we just wonder? And I was like, that's a great question. Like, I, I don't know. Can we, like, can we just just wonder? And what I heard was a 15-year-old who's lived all of his life with a tiny computer in his pocket, quick to be able to, with a couple of keystrokes, be able to, to look at the answer to any question. And what I heard him saying in that moment was, I've got all the information, Dad. I just want to engage my imagination a little bit. And that question, that conversation was the origin and the beginning of this, of this series where we started to think like, what has this loss of wonder, what has it cost us in life and what has it cost us in relationships? Like, can we just wonder? And Eugene Peterson helps us with a definition of wonder. If you've got, pen, you may wanna write this down. He says, wonder is an astonished willingness to stop what we're doing, to stand still, open-eyed, open-handed, ready to take in what is more and other. Wonder is an astonished willingness to stop what we're doing, to stand still, open-eyed, open-handed, ready to take in what is more and other. The thing about wonder and when we have a wonderful experience is that wonder begs to be shared. Wonder begs to be shared with others. Wonder desires to be, when we experience a wonderful moment, it desires to be shared. Has anybody ever gotten, any golfers ever gotten a hole in one? Anybody just go ahead and raise your hand. So we can look at you with envy. No, I mean, there's, when, there's the thing about a, a hole-in-one, like in, and last week we talked about rejoicing with those who rejoice. So we're not going to be envious. We're just going to rejoice with those who have rejoiced. But the thing about a hole-in-one is anybody who plays golf wants a hole-in-one. They just don't want one by themselves. I could think of nothing more tragic on the golf course than... Than getting a hole in one, your first hole in one in a lifetime, and being all by yourself and having no one to share it with. Because wonder and wonderful moments desire, they beg to be shared. Who's the person you call when you experience something wonderful? Who's your first call when you have one of those wonderful moments? I, I called Reed to tell her about what happened a couple months ago. I was at the Chick fil A, I was going to get an uh, Arnold Palmer, which is a, a sweet tea lemonade. And uh, and they don't call it an Arnold Palmer; they call it a Sunjoy. And uh, I'll call it whatever they want me to. But I just want one. It's delicious. And 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 so I went to go get one of those. And when I went into the Chick Fil A, I saw a Pastor Tom Tyndall and his wife um, Betty. I saw them in the Chick Fil A, and they were having uh, they were having like some of you don't know who Pastor Tom and Betty are, and a little bit of their their story. They've been about part of Cross Point since the, since the beginning. So like 21 years they've been part of the church. He was on staff for about seven years. They have, uh, he's been in ministry for over 50 years and, uh, and they've been married, um, it'll be 55 years next month. And so saw them, yeah, celebrate that. And so I saw them sitting over at the table and, uh, and I thought it'll be fun to surprise them. And, uh, and so uh, I walked in, I got my um, son, Joy, I walked in and I, I walked around and I, I got my phone out and I started walking backwards, like, so they wouldn't see my face. Not even thinking like, what does that look like? A guy moonwalking through the Chick-fil-A. And so I walked backwards and I sat at the table right behind them. And so I was back to back with Pastor Tom and I just, uh, I started, I started talking started talking. I called him and I was just like, Hey, Pastor Tom, it's Kevin. What are you doing? He said, Oh, Kevin. I said, I'm at the Chick-fil-A just having chicken minis with Betty. And, uh, and I'm like, Shh. you know, I'm like, and then he hears the echo or hears me laugh. And he, he realizes that I'm right behind him. He turns around. I turn around and it was like, it was just, it was funny. And, uh, and so, so I just, I go over, he said, well, come on, pull up a chair. And so I go and i pull up a chair and we start talking. I love Pastor Tom. Like Pastor Tom, Pastor Tom loves Jesus and he loves Cross Point, and he loves the Florida Gators and two out of three aren't bad. And so I, I just, I've, I'm still, yeah, we'll, we'll talk. And so we're, we're talking, we talked for about two or three minutes and then this guy walks up to our table. This guy walks up to our table, he's holding a piece of paper and he, um, and he says, will, will you pray for me? He said, will you guys pray for me? He said, I went to the Minute Clinic and I've got a bad toothache and, uh, and I can't get any relief, will you pray for me? And I'm confused, I'm like, does this guy know Pastor Tom? Do I know, like how, and he has no idea, he's never met either of us, I asked this guy's name, he said, my name is Daniel, he, and I'm looking at him, and he's got a jean jacket, jeans on, he looks, looks like he went hard in the paint, on Broadway the night before, I mean, I'm just look at the guy and I'm like, man, he had a rough, he had a rough night. He's had a rough, I could tell that he was, he was struggling. And, and I see the minute clinic piece of paper. So I'm like, I don't think this is a scam. I don't know. And Pastor Tom doesn't, doesn't know him. And I said, he said, his name was Daniel. I said, well, Daniel, you want to sit down and, and why don't you just tell us, tell us your story. He said, well, I was coming to town. I got a friend in town and, uh, and I was coming to town to experience Nashville and um, man, I'm just not, not doing well. And I said, well, man, tell us, tell us about, like, what's your, what's your faith story, man? Do you a spiritual person? I mean, you asked for prayer. He said, yeah. He said, my mom and dad, they're believers. He said, I'm from Florida. I live down there. And my mom and dad are believers, but I'm, I'm not uh, where I need to be. And uh, he said, I'm really struggling. And I said, man, what are you, what are you struggling with? And he said, I'm struggling with addiction and, uh, and struggling with, with alcohol and in uh, drugs. I said, man, what kind of, what kind of drugs? And he said, all the kind. And um, I said, man, can we, um, can we pray for you? And he said, yeah. And so we, we began to pray for, for Daniel. And it was in that moment, like God just, God met us. And we just, we prayed for, we prayed for his heart. We prayed for his relationship with his parents. We prayed that his relationship with God would be restored. We prayed for freedom. And, uh, and then we, we said, Tom prayed, Pastor Tom prayed, Miss Betty prayed. And then we got done. And I uh, said, amen. And he looked up and he was just weeping. And he goes, my toothache is gone. Which is wild because we didn't even pray for his tooth. <laughs> and I was like, man, if your toothache, maybe that means God took care of your heart as well. He healed your heart as well. If he can heal your tooth, he can heal your heart. And there was just this powerful moment. And Tom, Pastor Tom and we're all looking at each other like, what just happened, you know? And you know, I was, I was thinking about thinking about that story, and, and I love that love that story. Um, just, I wanted to let you know if you see Pastor Tom and Miss Betty at Chick Fil A, just get ready. God's about to move. Okay, that's why. <laughs> just look for them when you go into the Chick Fil A. Um, I also share that. Go. You know, I don't know how all of that worked together. I don't know how all that came together with this guy knowing to come and ask us to to pray for him, with with us praying for his toothache and. Praying for his heart, how we knew what to pray for in his life. I don't know how all those things came together, but I don't know how electricity works, and I don't know what they put in a Chick-fil-A sandwich to make it so addictive. But I do know this: that I don't have to understand something completely to enjoy it fully. Like that's that's wonder. I don't have to, I don't have to understand something completely to to truly enjoy it fully. That's wonder. And here's what's crazy. Pastor Tom and Miss Betty, they didn't come to Chick-fil-A looking for a miracle. They were looking for chicken minis. I came looking for a son, Joy. Daniel came looking for relief from a toothache. And God was looking for Daniel. Here's what you need to know, no matter where you're, what you're dealing with, what you're going through, that God is pursuing you out of his love for you. And a miracle happened that day. There were a lot of miracles that happened that day, but one of the miracles in that story that maybe you might have missed, it was really the combination of a thousand little miracles. And that miracle is the miracle of resilience. See, it's the miracle in our culture, in our day, in our world, that Pastor Tom and Miss Betty have been married almost 55 years. That's a miracle. That Pastor Tom has been in ministry for 52 years, and that they've been at the same church for 23 years. That's resilience. It it takes resilience to be married for 55 years. It takes resilience to stay in the same church for 23 years. It takes resilience to be in ministry and to finish well after, after 52 years. So we've been talking about how to restore wonder in relationships. We've talked about humility. We've talked about integrity. We've talked about empathy. And today I want us to talk about resilience from Romans chapter 12. Now, if you're looking for a definition of resilience, I personally, I love the definition that um, author Tom Bols- Todd Bolsinger gives of this, of resiliency. And let me go ahead and give it to you. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. Resilience is the ability to wisely persevere together in our God-given mission when we face external challenges and internal resistance. Let me give that to you again. Resilience is the ability to wisely persevere together in our God-given mission when we face external challenges and internal resistance. Resilience is showing up when you wanna shut down. It's getting up for one more round when you wanna throw in the towel. It's continuing to press on after setbacks and failures and difficulties and challenges and adversity in life. Resilience is what enables you. It's the virtue that enables you to continue to move forward, to learn from your mistakes, to continue to to keep growing and to keep going. That's that's resilience. And, And God wants to build resilience into our hearts and into our lives and into our relationships. In Romans chapter 12 the apostle paul is writing to the church at rome and he's writing to them and he wants to inspire them in resilience because remember there in rome there was a there was an emperor claudius who what happened was he he sent all the jews sent them away so out of rome and when they came back they found the roman christians didn't adopt a lot of the same traditions or hold to a lot of the same belief. There was differences in the way that they they practice faith and part of the church. And so there were differences in what they believed about what was kosher and what would they believe about circumcision, about a lot of things. And so Paul is writing this letter saying, I want you to be united. I want you to, to restore the fellowship. I want you to be together. I want you to experience unity because of what we believe about the gospel. Because what Paul was hoping for is that the church at Rome would have a strategic place when it came to expanding the gospel to the to the ends of the earth. We understand that our resilience is not just for us. Our resilience is for others. It's for the next generation. It's for those who have followed. So he's like, I want you to have resilience so that that the church at Rome can be a launching pad for the mission of what would happen to Spain and to the ends of the earth, that our resilience is, is bigger than us. And then he's saying, I want you to stay united in the gospel. And what is the gospel? What is the good news? It's that we have a resilient God with a resilient love who never gives up on you. And that this re- resilient God with a resilient love sent his son Jesus to go to the cross for us. He went to the cross for us and he overcame death. A resilient God who overcame death, he, he, he went, he conquered death. But the worst evil that the world had to put out there, Jesus, he overcame, he faced it directly and overcame it. And he's working to restore all things. And so this resilient God with the resilient love, he puts his spirit in us. When we put our faith in Christ, he puts his resilient spirit in us so that we can keep moving forward and become more like Christ. That's what God wants to do in your life. He wants to make you more like Christ to form Christ-likeness in us. And at the same time that we would fulfill the mission that he has for us, you have a purpose in life. And God has put his spirit inside of you to make you more like Christ and so that you can accomplish his mission for your life. That's, why we, that's where we find peace and fulfillment and happiness. It's from living in relationship with him and living the mission that he has for us, the purpose that he has for us. And so how do we, how do we have this resiliency formed in us? So, well, I want to give you three primary ways. If you're taking notes, you can write them down. Three primary ways that the spirit of God forms resilience in us. If you're taking notes, you write it down. The first is word and prayer, word and prayer. At the beginning of Romans chapter 12, it says, be transformed by the what? By the renewing of your mind. The Holy Spirit works in us to renew our minds. What that means is to change the way that we think. My friend John Acuff, he says this. He says, one of the worst mistakes we can make is believing that all of our thoughts are true. So we want to examine what we're thinking because because how we think determines how we live. And so we want to take, take every thought captive. And so we have those little lies running around like I'm good for nothing. Like this will never work. Like nobody cares about me. Like it doesn't matter if I keep going. I can just hang it up, I can just give up. When we have those thoughts that are, that are lies and those thoughts that come from shame and accusation, which shame and accusation does not come from God. There is now no condemnation. Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what we do is we, we, we experience transformation in our lives by changing the way that we think. How do we change the way we think? Through a steady diet of scripture, of God's word. So when we read God's word, we pray God's word, we meditate on God's word, marinate in God's word, memorize God's word. We get God's word into the way that we think so God can change the way we think so that our lives are transformed. And so these old lies, these old, what happens, we're inviting God into our thoughts. And as God dwells in our, in our minds and in our thoughts, he gradually begins to crowd out distorted beliefs, destructive feelings, And misguided intentions. And as our thoughts change, our lives change, that's how resilience is built. The the world is now just catching on and they call it a resilience mindset. (laughs) But this has been going on. This is the reason God gave us His word. This is what Paul's talking about when he says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that we examine our thoughts, take every thought captive. And through a steady diet of scripture in our lives, we build a resilience mindset. We're able to persevere. So the word and prayer, that's the first way that God does it. Another way that God builds resilience in our life is relationships, is relationships. When we're going through external challenges and facing internal resistance, we need other people. We need other people to encourage us. We need other people to help us, but it's also the other people in our life, the different people in our life, that teach us how to love. We don't learn how to love by being with people who like us and are like us. We learn how to love by being around people who were different than us. And what happened in Rome, you had the differences. You had different beliefs. You had different opinions. You had different, you had different backgrounds. You had different temper. When the different people enter into proximity in our lives, God uses people who are different than us to teach us how to love. People are like resistance training for learning how to love. And it's through those relationships that we need God's grace. Have you ever had somebody that just wears you out? Don't point, do not point. Have you ever had somebody that was just like a little extra grace required, just an EGR, like just extra grace required in life? We all have. The reality is you are somebody else's EGR. Like you're somebody else's extra grace required. And we all need grace from God. <laughs> and so we receive his grace. And it's in the context of relationships with people who are different than us that we learn how to love. And there are some people who are a master class for you when it comes to love. You're getting your master's degree in learning to love. And when we face those people, we can either, we can either just try to handle it on our own, or we can pray, God, would you stretch me? Would you grow me? Would you teach me? Would you help me? Because it's in those relationships that we learn how to forgive, that we learn how to tolerate, that we learn how to, how to repent, that we learn how to adapt, we learn how to sacrifice. It's those relationships with different people, whether it's a spouse or children or a coworker, other family members or our neighbors that we learn how to love. I believe that God has not put those people in your life by accident, but they're on purpose. Those relationships are there on purpose. And it's those relationships that build resiliency, that build resilient love, that we learn to love like Jesus. So it happens through prayer and through the word. It happens through relationships. And then third, God builds resilience in our lives through suffering. It's through the external challenges in life. And none of us will make it through this life without experience suffering. And suffering was not part of God's original intent in creating the earth. But it is one of the things, it's an instrument that God will use to build resilience in us, in a fallen world to help us form Christ in us. Look at what Romans 5, 2 through 5 says. It says, We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Suffering builds resilience. God uses his word, he uses other people, and he uses the circumstances in our lives to build resilience in us. In Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us what, what, he gives us a great definition of what resilience is. And I want to read, I want to share it with you. We'll pick up in verse 10. He says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Look at the very beginning. He says, he says be devoted to one another in love. What is devotion? What is devotion? It's that commitment. It's that I'm locked in with you. Like we're in this game. Have you ever watched uh, bull riding? Have you ever watched that moment like where they, where the, where they take, the, take the rope and they go and they just wrap it around their wrist? Like in that moment where they just wrap it around their wrist, they're going, I'm locked in. I'm not going anywhere. Well, I might go somewhere, but I'm doing everything I can to lock in here. It's that, it's the, the tie-in. It's that moment like, like I am tie-in. That, that's a picture of Devotion. That's a picture of being being devoted. And Paul's writing to the church. He's like, be devoted, like tie in, in a a world that lives in a transfer portal. That when things get hard, you just go somewhere else. When things get difficult, you look for an escape. In that moment, Paul's saying, be devoted to one another in love. Like the tie in in relationships. Find a tribe, find a group of people, find some godly friends, find some people who will love you unconditionally, find some people who will support you in life's challenges and that you can support them. Find a place to serve, find some people to volunteer with, to get in the trenches and be a part of a cause and a mission that's bigger than you. Find those places in life, find those people in life and tie in. Lock in on on your marriage and lock in on friendship and lock in on those relationships because it's in the context of being devoted to one another in love that we experience up there coming down here, that we experience the power and presence of God in our relationships through being devoted in love. He says, honor one another. Have you ever been like at a, at a party? You ever been with some people and it's like, you're talking with somebody and the whole time you're talking to them, it's like they're scanning the room looking for somebody else to talk to. They see somebody. And so you're like, you're locked in, you're locked in there and they're going. And they're just looking like, they're having all these like sub conversations and like, hey. have you ever, like how does that make you feel? On the other hand, have you ever had somebody that in a crowded room, maybe even somebody that knows a lot of people But in that moment, they're just looking at you and you got their full attention. How does that make you feel? It makes you feel like you're the most important person in the world. See, that's honor. And honor follows devotion. It's saying, I'm locked in with you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm here with you. And so Paul is saying, he's saying, be devoted to one another in love and honor one another above yourselves. And then he says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. How's your spiritual fervor? How's the heat in your heart and love toward Jesus? See, what we learn from this text is that spiritual fervor is our responsibility. It's each one of us our own responsibility. It's not your mama's job, not your daddy's job, not your wife's job, not your husband's job. It's not your pastor's responsibility, it's not your youth pastor's responsibility. Your spiritual fervor is your responsibility. And here's why this matters in resilience. Because if our heart is not white hot in love for God, then what happens is we start going to other people to meet needs that only God can meet. See, if God's not meeting those needs and our spiritual fervor, our heart for him and us giving him our love and receiving his love, we start going to other people to meet the needs. It's like going around with with God's job description trying to give that to other people and they can never meet God's job description. And so he says, keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And then he says, be joyful. He gives this great triad of resilience. He says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Isn't that good? You know definition of resilience? Be joyful in what? Hope. Patient in affliction and faithful in prayer. And I've taken this scripture this week and it's become kind of like, a, I've memorized it. And this is the way we're transformed by the renewal of our mind. Because when we face something difficult, we're going to have a thought. They call it a stream of consciousness. The beautiful freedom that we have as human beings is we can direct the way that we think. We get to choose what we place our thoughts upon. So we get to direct the stream. And when we take a scripture like this, when we face something difficult, when we hit a pothole on 440 and our tire goes flat, like in that moment, we have, so, we have a thought that we're gonna have, we, we have something that we're gonna think. When somebody's late for the meeting, when you don't get the promotion, when the thing didn't happen like you thought, when there's, a, when there's, you know, when there's an argument, in that moment, we have a thought that we're going to think. Be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so think this thought, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. It's this powerful thing when we choose what we set our minds upon. So let's talk about what that means. I just wanna encourage you this week. Like you can actually memorize a verse today. It's, I don't know how many verses you have. Some of you are like, I know Jesus wept. That's one, but then there's, there's here's another one. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. You can memorize that. Make a difference in your life. What does it mean to be joyful in hope? joyful in hope. Joy is a fruit of the spirit. Hope is a choice. That's what Annie taught us the first week. Hope is a choice that we make. What is hope? Hope is future oriented faith. Hope is the windshield. It's looking toward the future. It's looking toward what's to come. It's looking toward opportunities. And here's what I can tell you, here's what we can be hopeful because God is good. God is good. And he is, he is for our good. He is for our good and he is for his glory. And God will bring good into our lives for his glory. And so that means when we face difficulties, when we face adversities, we know that God is working and we know that God gives good gifts and we know that God has good plans for us and we know that He works all things to the good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So here's what we know if it's not good, God's not done. God is still working. And so hope is the windshield of the faith. But here's what I know about when I drive the car I have a windshield, but I also have a rearview mirror. And so I have a choice when I'm driving am I going to look out the windshield or am I going to look in the rearview mirror? The windshield is what's to come. Opportunities, experiences, blessings that God has for us in our lives, relationships that got new relationships, God. This is the windshield. The rear view is what's happened in the past. That's what's behind me. And in life, we have a decision to make. Are we going to look forward out of hope in the windshield of faith? Or do we look in the rearview mirror at what happened behind us, at the past, at our hurts, at our pains, at betrayal? Because we, we all have the choice. Now you can, you can glance at the rear view, but don't gaze at the rear view. If you gaze at the rear view mirror, that's how you get in a wreck. Do you lock in on the rear view mirror? I mean, it's okay to look there every now and then, but when you're moving forward, it's looking through the windshield of hope. And I wonder how many of us in life were stuck in relationships because we're gazing at the rear view instead of gazing out the windshield. It's okay to glance at the rear view, but what do we do when we look in the rear view? And what do we, how do we, how do we have this joyful hope and one of those gifts is why Jesus gave us communion, the Lord's Supper. Every week when you walk into any of our campuses, there's a little cup that you can, you can take. I'd encourage you with a couple, maybe friends or family members to make that part of your worship. Sometime that you grab a few of those and together you go through and experience the Lord's Supper together. And with each one of those little cups, you can remove the top and there's, there's bread and Jesus said, remember me, remember that my body was broken for you and underneath there's juice. Jesus said, remember me that my blood was shed for you. And when we remember him, it helps us. that There is big hope in that little cup <laughs> because what we remember in that moment is that our past has been dealt with, that all our past, our past has been dealt with, that everything that's in the rearview mirror of your life has been dealt with at the cross, that your past has been forgiven and he is with us in the present. And that he has our future taken care of, that your eternity. if you're in Christ, your eternity is secure in him. And if you can trust him with your eternity, you can trust him with next Thursday. I'm going to say that again. If you can trust him with your eternity, you can trust him with next Thursday." And some of you are like, "But my, my final exam's next Tuesday. You can trust him with Tuesday, too." <laughs> there is big hope in that little cup that he is with you, and he is for us, and he is working. In all of our circumstances, be joyful in hope, be patient in affliction, patient in affliction. What's affliction? Bible calls this long suffering. This is endurance. He says, be patient in affliction. It, is, why can we, how can we be patient? Because God is working. We can trust that he's working. Even when we can't see it, even when we don't feel it, God is working. And when we are patient in affliction, he is working in us. Now, here's what I can tell you about affliction is that we don't want to experience it. And so the temptation is to escape. The temptation is to run. But you can't have wine without the crushing of the grape. And you can't have oil without the crushing of the olive. And the anointing in life oftentimes comes through the crushing. And so, if we always run when the crushing comes, we don't experience it. And impatience says, I want to, I, I got to get out from under this. Some people say, Well, God will never give you more than what you can handle. No, that's not true. God will never give you more than what you can handle with Him. And so, it's in the adversity and in the affliction and in the patience. And impatience wants to run, impatience wants to escape. But it's in that that God does it work. And what I know from my own life is that impatience never leads us to make good decisions. How many of you make <laughs> good decisions? And what impatience does, it causes us to make quick decisions that oftentimes are not led by the Holy Spirit, but led by our own desires to escape. But what, when, as we are patient in suffering, what we see is we see that's how God leads us to his best. And God's timing is all, it is, it's always perfect. God is never late. He is rarely early. and He's always on time. And it's through being patient in affliction that we learn God's timing and we find God's ways and experience God's choice. And God's plan is always worth the wait. It was being impatient in affliction, that was what created an Ishmael instead of an Isaac. But as we are patient in affliction, that's how we encounter God's plan. And God's plan is always worth the cost of a delay. In 2020, we learned something about waiting, didn't we? Some of you just blocked that out. You're like, PTSD, right? 2020, we learned about waiting. There was a mantra that I came across when it, it was super helpful for me when it came to being patient in affliction. And it was from the Mennonite Peace Center. And it was a, uh, it was a three-part mantra. And here's what they say. You might want to write it down especially if you're, if you're leading in a time of crisis, let me give it to you. It's stay calm, stay connected, and stay the course. That's not just for a business. That's not just for a church. It can be for a marriage, for a friendship, in all of our lives. Stay calm, stay connected, and stay the course. That's resilience. That's resilience. And then faithful in prayer. This is what makes resilience possible. How do we remain joyful in hope? Being faithful in prayer. How do we remain patient in affliction? Being faithful in prayer. And when you think about prayer, I want you to think about, I want you to think about keeping company with God, just having conversation with God, talking to God and listening listening with him. He's saying being faithful. Now, when you think about faithfulness, I want you to think more consistency than intensity. Being faithful in prayer isn't so much, don't do that especially if you're on a stage in front of a bunch of people. Never, like, like when you think faithfulness, it's not so much about intensity, it's about consistency. It's about the things that we do every day, every week, every month, every year. That's how you change a culture. That's how you experience change our lives. What do we do every day? And saying, be, be faithful. Your first cup of coffee with Jesus, <laughs> faithful in prayer. It'll change your day, bringing faithfulness to prayer. A, a, a great... Um, a great illustration of being faithful in prayer came from something I read. There was a study from an organization called Family Life. They did a few few years back and they, they, they studied and they interviewed thousands and thousands of Christian couples. And here's what they discovered. They discovered that fewer than 8% of Christian couples said they prayed together regularly. Now, fortunately for their study, it had a silver lining. And here's what they found. They found that of the 8% of couples that prayed together regularly, fewer than 1% of them divorce. Let me give it to you one more time. Of the 8% of couples that prayed together regularly, fewer than 1% of them divorce. Now the prayer doesn't have to be fancy. You don't have to change your voice when you pray. You don't have to pray really anything profound. It's the faithful consistency of praying. It's at at night before you go to bed, just reaching over, husbands, grab your wife's hand and just say, God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this day. Thank you for our family. Thank you for our marriage. Just find some things to be thankful for. And say, God, would you help us? Would you help us be joyful in hope? Would you help us be patient in affliction? Would you help us be faithful in prayer? Just share your heart to God. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be profound. It doesn't say anything about that. It says the, the faithfulness of this, it builds resilience. I was just thinking that's consistency. And it takes a lot of, look, I can pray with a lot of other people, But what I learned in my marriage for many years, I didn't do this because it was just hard. It was hard at the end of the day to reach over and to pray. And you were like, it shouldn't be hard. It was. But it's powerful what this small act of obedience does, how it transforms things. Because you can't go to bed mad with somebody you just prayed with. And the act of saying, God, we need your help here of expressing need and help to God. It doesn't have to be long. doesn't have to be profound. You don't have to change your voice. doesn't have to be fancy. But just a simple prayer makes a huge difference. And you can do nothing and experience the odds that the world experienced 50-50. Or you can do one act of faithful prayer and consistency and increase your chances of making it to 99%. And here's what happened with prayer. Prayer restores wonder. Say, God, what could you do? And that's why at the end of the service at all of our campuses today, we're going to have a time of prayer. If you need prayer today for anything, we'd love to stand with you, pray for you. If you can heal in your heart, healing in a relationship, maybe healing of a toothache. We know God can do that. Uh, we want to invite you to come forward in prayer. But before we finish today, I want to share a story of resilient love. It's a story that we, that we came across. Um, and uh, when it was shared with us, uh, man, we, we wanted to share it. We we'll share it with you. It's a story of resilient love and, uh, and and foster care that came together. It's, uh, it's Allison Trahun's story, and uh, and she's part of Cross Point Online. She lives in Houston, Texas, and we wanted to be sure to share it with you. I so.
1: I'd just gotten a job out here in Mont Bellevue, about 45 minutes away from Houston. The realtor brought me out here. This was the first house that I'd looked at. I mean, it's just me, single. Wasn't going to have a roommate this time. It was a four-bedroom house. And she was like, I know you've always got people's kids and your family's out of town. I was like, yeah, it's a big house. Let me think about that. I desired to have kids, but I wasn't really doing anything to work towards finding a husband or anything like that. But I did. I thought about it, and I prayed about it. And I just felt like there was something that was going to happen here. And then March hit, and everything shut down. And I was a teacher, so I was working from home. And I was watching Crosspoint, um, like I'd been doing for years, and they mentioned how there was a need for um, people to support foster families. It wasn't even fostering necessarily, but just to support. And so I um, signed up and went to like an informational meeting, and I was like, I really think this is it. There was a fear being single, and I just realized I can't always live in the what ifs, because There's a lot of things that can change at the drop of a hat, no matter what your situation is. I was officially licensed on September the 10th of 2020. And then September 24th, I got my first call, and that baby was here that night. My first placement, I only had her about three and a half months. Psalms 1:27-4 says like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. I decided that when my kids were leaving, I would make like a collage of pictures of them. And so I went out and bought all different shapes and sizes of arrows. And so that's what we do. Like that week that they're leaving, when I find out we go outside and we get messy and paint and they paint an arrow so that I can hang that up just to remind myself again of like what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. We're going to love real hard while they're here, right? But we can be real sad when they leave, but we have to know that they're going to what's best for them. Whenever I got my fourth one, he came to me straight from the hospital. I wasn't ready. I thought I was, but he got here, and I was like, oh, this is what seven pounds looks like. Like, this is tiny. We had some long runs at the hospital, a lot of doctor's visits. I mean, he had a long list of things, but like I've told people before, like, the thing that was longer than the list of all of his issues was the people that I had behind me that were willing to step in. I had started hearing around May of last year that it looked like it was leaning toward adoption. There was just something about him that I was like, I'd love to envision a future with him. And if the opportunity would have presented itself for any of the first three, I would have done the same thing for them. I wasn't able to like, surprised my parents with like a pregnancy announcement or a gender reveal. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to reveal like the name that I chose for him. I landed on Micah when he was about five months old. And Micah means who is like our God. And I'm like, you know, he had so many things going on before he ever even made it here. And then even his first three weeks, he was just in a hospital bed with nobody coming to see him. And so I just feel like only God was able to like orchestrate that. His middle name is Nash. It's because of Crosspoint. I mean, kicked off the whole thing for me, and so I just felt like that made sense. Micah Nash makes sense to me. Everybody calls him by those first and middle name, which I love. But yeah, that's him. I hear people say this all the time, and I know they're well-meaning, but they'll say things like, "Oh, I couldn't do that. I would be. I'd get way too attached." I'm like, I think that's the point. These kids don't have somebody in their corner. And so I think that's the whole purpose is like, get so attached to them so that they, they have that safety. They have that relationship with you. Like they know what love is because it's not just me. Y'all. I mean, it's, it's, every, it's every one of us just like coming around them. You know? So I think that's the point is to get too attached. Mama. What's your name? Micah. <laughs> a great
0: story. Yes. Thank God for that. I want to share something super cool that you were a part of this past week that maybe you didn't know about. Um, our team was so moved by that story that the Dollar Club team came together and said, felt compelled to do something um, for them. And, uh, and so... Um, what we were able to do together, because of your generosity to the Dollar Club, uh, we were able to give $10,000 toward a 529 plan, uh, education savings plan for Micah Nash to help set him up for the future because of the way you did. Um, his his name, Micah, means who is like our God, and our God is generous, and uh, and you are generous. So we're never more like God than when we give ourselves away. And this this month for Foster Care Awareness, we want to to put this opportunity out in front of you to ask God, God, what would you have what would you have me do? And there are two primary ways to get involved. Is one is to explore what it would be like to be a foster care family, and the other is to be a part of a support team that comes around these families. And so we would encourage you, ask God what he would have you do, and one way to take a next step is to go to crosspoint.tv/fostercare and find out more about the informational meeting we have. Um, so that you can take that next step as well. And, uh, and I, uh, I want to give you a PSA before we dismiss. Um, next week is Mother's Day. So if you didn't know that, just, uh, just want to make sure you know that and encourage you this week to be, uh, to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. We'll see you back next week.